Joe Biden was not Sam Weinberg's top choice for the Democratic Party's nomination in 2020. But after Biden secured victory in the Democratic primary, the 19-year-old Illinois native set up Settle for Biden, an Instagram account using what he describes as sardonic millennial and Gen Z humor to convince young people to, well, settle for Biden. Well, Biden won the 2020 election and many credit big turnout among young voters. Welcome back to In Focus with David Coletto. I'm your host, David Coletto from Abacus Data. On the podcast this week, I'm joined by John Della Volpe, the founder and CEO of Social Sphere. And for 21 years, he has been the director of polling at Harvard University's Institute of Politics, where he has led the research program exploring the attitudes and opinions of America's millennials and Generation Z. John also recently served as a pollster for President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's 2020 campaign, where he focused on youth research. John and I got to know each other over the past few years after he visited Ottawa in 2019. I had a lot of fun speaking with John. Hope you enjoy this episode. John, thanks so much for, for, for joining us today. I've I'm a, I'm a, been a big fan since we met in Ottawa a few years ago, and I've been following your work even before I knew you through the, the work you do at the Institute of Politics at Harvard. I've been starting every conversation um, that I'm having with, with researchers with a, a question that gets at kind of their core framework or philosophy around public opinion. A big part of our course and, and my work is trying to you know, look at the theory of public opinion and then applying it in the real world. Um, so, so what do you feel is your kind of guiding light um, when it comes to the study of, of public opinion and, and its connection with then behavior? David, thank you. And uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to, uh, to be with you today. Um, I'm going to go a little bit off script and I kind of channel the way in which I think about public opinion to an old rock song actually by you two. And what Bono wrote was that we thought we had the answers. It was the questions we had wrong. Right. And what I'm referring to is that regardless of what subject I'm studying, and as you said, I've been fortunate enough at the uh, Institute of Politics at Harvard to study youth now for 20 years since, you know, when I was probably part of that category. Um, but despite how much time I spent with young people or in any particular subject area, I kind of want to start from scratch, right? Start from scratch and, and begin by asking voters, members of the public, citizens, et cetera, in terms of what they care about today, right? That too often, I think um, pollsters, um, myself included, assume that people have well-informed opinions about things that um, we care deeply about, but don't necessarily fit within the context of their everyday life. So the very first place I always start is usually with qualitative, but it's to begin to ask myself and, and to ask the other members of our team, what are the questions that we really need to understand to help us understand the context of the lives that our constituents are living and how a campaign, a candidate, an issue kind of fits within that, within that context. So that theory or, or that approach 
assumes, which I think is a, a really interesting one, that, I mean, we're social scientists at core, and so people are pretty unpredictable, they change. And, and I think it, 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 it forces us to reflect on our own biases, right? If you're basically saying, you start from scratch, you say, I don't believe that Americans generally, Canadians have a, sort of a starting point, that, that what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives is actually the starting point. And so the questions matter um, as much as the answers in a way. Especially in, in, in this era, of, and we'll talk about this era being like this century, last 20, last 20 years, you know, um, whether it's a, it's a telephone survey, an online survey, a town meeting, a focus group, it, it will take me, um, and sometimes, you know, our clients obviously have to have a little faith that we get there, and we, we always do, but it might take me half of a group, you know, or half of a survey before we're talking about the, uh, the core issue at stake. You know, I'll start the research exercise by asking, what's a good day, right? You know, um, and I might hear, well, when I have more money in my checking account at five o'clock PM than five o'clock AM, well, that's a good day, okay? Um, I might hear that when the public transportation arrives on time and I can get to work so I can hold on to my job, that's a good day, okay? And that immediately grounds me Right when when my son or my daughter come home safely from school, right? Um, that's a good day. So before we can talk about healthcare or or the environment or you know any number of issues, understanding that context so critically important. Part one, and I think the other thing also is I spent a lot of time thinking about is their relationship and, and faith and trust in in institutions. Right, whether they're public or private, to understand kind of where where that relationship is, because typically, you know, we're working for people who are trying to persuade or influence public opinion. Those are the folks who who have the resources, public, private, etc. In understanding the relationship, um, in terms of how much how trusted that institution could be when they're trying to advocate for a position or a message, is also a really important kind of grounding point um, before we can really begin the research it's so important right like again you mentioned your clients my clients always want to get to what they care about but i always remind them before you get to what you care about you have to understand what do your what does your audience care about and we've actually started um at the end of uh 2020 a project we're calling like the happiness monitor right it's mm. just this overarching tracking of how canadians are, are reporting their own happiness and looking at its connection between a range of things what they buy how they feel about public affairs or politics um and and we're starting to see some really interesting relationships that change they're dynamic right it's not constant um when the vaccines were announced that they were starting to be approved we saw this like spike in national happiness and then a few days later our prime minister said uh, we might be second in line, third in line to get it. And we saw an instant sort of wow. drop back down, right? And so that context is so important, really interesting. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole you as the guy that only does youth research, but you've, you've built a career, um, you know, learning how young Americans are responding to, to their world and, and, and how politics fits in it. And it's something I'm passionate about too. And if, kind of tried to replicate up here in Canada. 
So you've been studying those values and attitudes for, as you said, 20 years. If you had to summarize what you're seeing both today and over the course of the last two decades, how are young Americans different from uh, older cohorts? So I think the, the, the couple, there are a couple, there are a couple things. Um, you know, now we've, we've studied now two generations, right? Um, we were fortunate that students um, are the ones, two, two uh, undergraduates at Harvard were the ones who, who um, kind of thought of and created this project that 20 years later is, is still going. And the reason that they did it, Aaron and Trevor, who I'm still in some contact with, um, they wanted to understand the disconnect between service and politics. They saw that so many members of their own cohort on campus at Harvard, other colleges and high schools around the country were engaged in some meaningful form of community service, but they weren't so excited about voting. And they wanted to kind of uh, understand through public opinion what we needed to do to bridge that, to bridge that gap. Within that context, again, we didn't start with politics. We started with what your life is like and what's meaningful. We realized that, um, that millennials and certainly Gen Z today are different um, than other um, generations. I guess one is the way in which they think about problems in terms of highly collaborative. One of the most meaningful early responses that we found after 9-11, as an example, and it still holds true, is that younger Americans believe strongly, as in two-thirds to three-quarters, that the UN and other nations ought to work collaboratively with the US to solve international crises and conflicts. Okay? Where, and that was a majority of every single cohort, even conservative Republicans, as compared to older Americans who believed it should be the other way around. So that was like one of the earliest indications that, that we saw a pretty significant generation gap in terms of values even David, when back in 2000, younger and older Americans voted the same way. You know, um, there was no generation gap in that Bush v. Gore. In fact, older Americans were a couple points more likely to vote Democrat than Republicans. So the idea of kind of the relationship with America and with kind of the global community is one significant value, I think, that is still different between younger and older Americans. That's one. The second thing is concern about um, inequality, you know, um, now, you know, systemic racism we're talking about, but, you know, back four or five, six years ago, I would say, you know, if you really want to kind of understand the heart and mind of a younger person, you need to talk about rampant inequality, and that is around access to education, the economy, based upon gender, race, et cetera. Um, again, that's something that I think that transcends most cohorts from the ideological spectrum. Uh, today, today, um, over basically over the last three or four years since 2017, what I would say is the one characteristic that best defines young people today is sadly this like intense fear and anxiety. And I, I'm assuming that you're picking some of this up too in your happiness monitor um, up in up in Canada. But um, fear of the future, their health. Um, you know, uh, for the for for the environment, for safety. This is something that, sadly, I think really is a, a weight that young people carry. A brilliant young woman from Ohio State said to me in a focus group not too long ago. She said, "You know, the way that your generation." And I would ask her, like, "What don't people like me understand?" Right? She goes, "The way that your generation thinks about money, thinks about taxes, you know, um, 
you know, that's the way we think about living and dying. Okay. Every day we walk into a classroom, we're looking where the exits are in case there's a shooter um, and how we're going to kind of get from A to B. Um, so that's something that I think really needs to be, again, um, understood because until we can unlock that fear, it's hard to have a conversation about some sort of political issue or other, or, or other dynamic. You think that, and I, I agree that fear is there. If you think about, I, I, I was born in 1981, so I'm like an old, really old yeah. millennial now. Um, but if you take a look at my sort of adult lifetime, like since I went away to school and then every other generation, the Gen Z that followed me, yeah, there have been these moments um, and events that have precipitated this sense that the world isn't as secure as I think many people raising us told us it would be. And that's the thing. It's like even this gap between expectations that I always talk about and reality. And, you know, my grandparents raised my parents, boomers, to say the world's tough. You've got to excel. We're going to give you maybe more than I had, but it's still a tough place, right? And you have to, you have to work hard and, and you're not going to be given anything. I think younger generations were raised not to think that they're going to be given everything, but that it was a more secure place, right? And it, it, it doesn't feel that way. And I think, you know, the existential crisis of climate change is just, you know, this weight that um, younger generations are carrying uh, with them. So, so the question that I always am asked, though, is does that change over time, right? There's this I'm not even going to call it a theory because I don't necessarily think there's any evidence, but I, I'm curious on your point. You always hear that, you know, when I, when I release data that says young Canadians, you know, are overwhelmingly in support of climate action, they, they see inequality, they're more, more likely to support a wealth tax than, than older Canadians. Everyone says to me, well, wait till they're 40, then that's all going to disappear. Do you think that's, that's likely to happen, that we're going to see all these more progressive, leaning young people shift as, as their life stage moves on? I don't think there's been much evidence of that. So I think, I think no, certainly not in, in recent time, because what we're talking about um, are real values, right, in terms of the way in which they, they think about their own lives and what their, um, uh, you know, what their hopes and expectations are, right? So if you have a value of understanding that we um, should um, be allies and, and, and friends and work collabor collaboratively with other nations, that's a value unlikely to change, right? If you see the, um, that uh, opportunity is closing and not opening for access to quality education, K through 12 or higher ed, that's unlikely to change, right? Most quote theory would say that values are determined during adolescence, right, to the early kind of adult years. Um, so I haven't seen any much indication whatsoever that the generation that was raised like you, uh, millennials, you know, post 2000 and 2000, 2001, in terms of your voting, as really becoming any less likely to support Democrats when we when Democrats make an effort, right? Um, the other quote value that um, I think is important to uh, appreciate for younger Americans is at least in our country they believe in a they don't always trust it but they believe in the theory of a stronger government, a stronger, more active, not necessarily bloated or big but they believe that the issues are so significant that's going to take 
everyone in terms of the collaboration, but led by government to solve them. And that's something clearly where like my generation, Gen X, raised politically between Watergate and Reagan is, uh, you know, feels less, less strongly about that. It's really interesting because I think, you know, the unit of measure when people do that analysis is often the cohorts or the, or the people, right? But in fact, and they say, well, look, they're going to vote conservative or more conservative oriented party as they get older. I actually think the unit that we need to measure is change among the parties that adapt to the value set of the dominant generation of the time, right? So th there's a lesson there that if like, in Canada, for example, right now, if you asked Canadians, how would they vote if an election, the conservative party, I wouldn't, I wouldn't equate them to the Republicans in the US. That wouldn't be maybe fair to conservatives here, depending <laughs> on your, your political orientation. But, you know, they're getting anywhere between 20 and 22% of the vote among young people in Canada, right? That compares to closer to 40 among older uh, voters. So I, I, I tell conservatives, if you believe the status quo is going to get you to, you know, those voters 10 years from now, then I think you're kind of dreaming and you're, you're um, so I think parties do adapt and, and because you always have to keep your audience in mind. And it's something we do, whether we're, we're doing market research or, or political research. Now, um, you talked about the generational gap that, that really opened up over the last 20 years in American politics. As you said, like in, in, in 2000, my first kind of presidential election that I paid attention to was first year of university for me. You said there, you know, th there wasn't a, gender, a generational gap in, in voting and, and now we see pretty sharp divides, right? And we've seen right. that for some time. And, in, and I don't think the US is not alone. We see it in the UK even more so. Right. Um, you know, class has been subsumed by generation as a, as a guiding post in voting in the UK, I think largely because of Brexit and, and what that meant. In Canada, we've seen a persistent gap um, over the last few years. Um, so just to sort of transition into the next section of our conversation, because you just finished when we're recording this, a pretty exciting uh, adventure. You were a pollster, one of the pollsters on the Biden Harris campaign. And I was reading in prepping for our, our discussion, some, an article about voter turnout, and you were quoted as saying, the challenge facing the Biden campaign was throughout the primary, he wasn't at least initially the preferred choice among young Democrats. He may not have been even the preferred choice at the end of the process, even though he clearly won uh, pretty substantially. Tell me a little bit about the challenge that you saw the Biden campaign having in that the energy that candidates like Bernie Sanders, I think Elizabeth Warren to some extent, were able to create among that, that cohort um, wasn't there for Biden in the early days. And, and what did you see in the research you were doing that, that might have pointed uh, in that direction? And then we'll get into your actual experience doing that, which by the way, I'm incredibly jealous of. So tell me about the challenge that the Biden campaign had because in my view, I don't think he would have won had it not been for the overwhelming turnout and, and differential in, in the youth vote. Uh, it's easy to point at different groups and say, without them, you couldn't win. But right. I'm pretty secure in saying if turnout didn't explode among young people, um, you know, it, it may not have happened this time. It's what an excellent question. Uh, so so um, a couple of things. We, uh, I believe for, you know, a, since 2004, really, that for a Democrat to win the presidency, that um, he or she needs to essentially reach 60 percent 
of the share vote among the under 30 crowd, generally speaking, okay? Now, it's even more important today because there are fewer voters, because a lot of the millennials have graduated into their 30s, that we kind of get that margin. Um, so that's kind of where we start. John Kerry and Hillary Clinton got about 55%. Obama got 66 and 60%, okay? So that's kind of um, where we start. A generic Democrat starts somewhere in the mid 50s or so, okay? so. Um, many ways for Republicans to counter that, right? By earning more votes, third party candidates, there's lots of different ways and dynamics for this to play out. The last significant, uh, the last public poll that I was part of um, was at the IOP that was um, fielded in March as the primaries were essentially wrapping up. And at that time, David, um, I was slightly surprised that there was no gap in a horse race between Biden and Trump compared to Sanders versus Trump. In both cases, Sanders and Biden scored you know, 60, 61%, despite the fact, as you said, that you know, Biden, I mean, that Sanders probably had a three to one advantage, right? When you look at the share of the youth vote over the course of that Democrat primary. In fact, the net favorability for Biden in that poll um, or in other public polling around that time was like negative 22 negative 23. So he was underwater, but he was getting the benefit of the doubt. So that's, um, you know, that's better than other circumstances, right? Um, you know, and really kind of the focus from the, from the first conversations I had was to take that, what we would call a very soft supporter, right? And to try to um, understand why they were soft and obviously kind of develop um, strategy, communications, otherwise to to build more enthusiasm to make that kind of a, a stronger, more reliable supporter. Something, frankly, that many campaigns, I think, kind of take for granted. They'll look at that poll and say, hey, we're at 60%. Great. Now let's, you know, take these resources and invest in other places. Um, but I can tell you from um, the very first conversation I ever had, with then Vice President Biden, you know, several years ago, um, where we kind of met at a dinner, uh, he was always focused on understanding the youth vote. Um, and I believe through those conversations that it was really uh, a challenge of communications rather than anything else. That, that um, the values that he has as espoused his life journey is more connected than young people realized during that primary. Um, and that I felt confident that if we were able to kind of show and tell that story, then things would, um, things would work out okay. And I think, this is my own opinion, I think you were successful at that, right? I think that's the best, that's such a good way of describing it is there was an inclination to vote for him. There was certainly, Trump repelled many people. So you already had a, a natural place and we can't right. ignore that. Like you were up against somebody who most young Americans would say, I want nothing to do with and doesn't align at all with what, how I see the world or what I think the most powerful country in the world should be doing and saying, its leader should be saying on a day-to-day on -day basis. But it, it feels to me that over the course of the campaign, things that, the Biden, that Biden did, him, that he said himself, but also you know selecting uh, Ms. Harris, as his, his running mate, signaled that he was acting on what he said he would do, right? right. And even in, 
in, and we're recording this in December, even in, in the lead up to his transition and his, his announcements of who he's appointing to his cabinet. And it, it's clear he's, he's, he's following through. And, and I think that is where a lot of young people fall down is that they, you know, it's great to say something, but it's another thing to actually do it. And, and I think that that really did help over the campaign. So the last section of little bit of time we have left, I, I want to get into the, the practical side of, of working on a presidential campaign as much as you're able to share. Um, you know, first, how was that experience? It was, uh, it was incredible. Clearly, you know, one of the very best experiences professional otherwise I've, I've ever had. A handful of folks, you know, I've had a relationship with over the years. Some I've read about and heard about and others, you know, so many of them were, were, were new and um, certainly kind of a challenge um, based on everything basically being on Zoom. But I've just learned so much about, about politics, about communication, about interpersonal relationships, about how to manage, you know, basically kind of a startup to ramp up from nothing to, you know, to thousands of employees and a billion dollar budget. So incredible experience and the best, kindest, most thoughtful people I've ever engaged with. And you won. And we won, yes, which, and we won. It's just not really the cherry on the top. It's the most important <laughs> exactly. thing, but it still feels good when that happens. So um, one of the interesting things that, you know, for, for Canadian listeners um, is, is different is, you know, first is the scale of a, a presidential campaign versus even a national campaign for one of the large political parties here in Canada is um, just the, you know, the amount of resources you have to do research, um, you know, and it may be in a typical election year in Canada, a party that has money might spend a few million dollars on research total mm -hmm. and have one person kind of coordinating it. You were one of four or five others that were, you know, doing research and advising the campaign, feeding, you know, public opinion data into it. How, 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 how does that work in terms of the dynamics of that? And I mean, you were focused, correct me if I'm wrong, on youth. That was kind of your yeah. primary focus, but how did it kind of work? In that kind of I think situation. it was one of the I think it was one of the best decisions that uh, that the campaign and Mike Donnellan really made to set this up. And you know, in, in presidential campaigns, there are typically kind of teams of pollsters. Right? With with a with a chief, you need to have one you know chief pollster, and we had one John Anzalone, right, who has had relationship with with President Biden now for 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 decades, and is a you know has worked on many presidential campaigns. Essentially, we had two. Um, main pollsters, John Anzalone and Celinda Lake, have been working for presidentials and governor's races and Senate races for many years, two of the very, very best people and pollsters I've ever worked with. They were in charge of essentially um, managing the battleground research, okay? So quantitative and qualitative in each of those states, that was their and their team's responsibility. In addition, and I think this is the real innovation um, that I, I uh, hope and expect that Democrats will use is that we had three, maybe call that call subject matter experts, right? Um, I was tasked with focusing on the youth vote. Um, we had a, another pollster and colleague, Silas Lee, sociology professor from Louisiana, focusing on the African-American vote. Again, with a different kind of perspective, engaged with politics, but also bringing the sociological background. And then we had Matt Barreto from um, Latino Decisions on the West Coast, focusing on Hispanic vote as well. And of course, within that, we each had our own specialties, we, you know, women, seniors, 
um, et cetera. But having that team where everyone worked with each other, right? So I would analyze the battleground youth polling, okay? They would then help me craft certain messages for my polling. It was, you know, a real kind of collaborative of effort. And I would argue that in the future, we need to do more, not less, of that subject matter specific, right? We need to have someone maybe like me who can really focus on, you know, younger rural voters, right? Who may have a specialty in that or, or go deeper into any one of the important demographic groups that are a challenge to pull these days. And, and, and I, I take it you probably become, as you said, a subject matter expert that's sought after by different parts of the campaign, right? So while you might be feeding your insights into the center strategy team, right? That, that's thinking about the big picture decisions. Were you also called upon to brief, you know, the, the digital team and the, you know, fundraising and other aspects that because you have this, this unique insight into one key demographic, you actually become this like source, become like, yeah, the source of like intelligence that, that can guide so much of the campaign. And, and, I, and I think that was one of the, uh, the great parts of this campaign, which our campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon, did so well, is that kind of bring in the different, um, you know, uh, elements of the organization from social, digital to paid media, communication, surrogates, right, local organizers. Um, obviously, I was working with the college team as well. So there was a multiple, multiple discipline organization seeing kind of the, the effect uh, and the insights from our research. And what was so important, so, so important is we need to do two things, right? We needed to build that relationship with, with, with uh, then Vice President Biden, now President Biden. But we also needed to build um, trust, trust um, with the actual process of voting and governing, okay? So it's not just about being the best guy, but being the best guy who's got the opportunity and knows how to solve the challenges that young people care about. It's a two-four. It's a two-four, and that perspective for youth is different, I think, in the way in which that's guided than you might get from other cohorts that were that were kind of talked spoke spoken with. So, you know, yeah, and the questions that I would ask, I would get from the coalition's director and from a state director and surrogates director were so incredibly important to informing what I ask about as well. Just briefly, can you give us a sense of the scale of? research being done on a presidential campaign like is there just you know constant daily tracking polls of all the different groups you talked about it's like how many focus groups were you doing were you doing any i guess it's hard with covid that maybe they're all virtual but what was what was going on on the day-to-day -day in terms of the, the scale and volume of research so there's a couple of different tracks right there's an analytics department and then there's the polling department the analytics team of which um, I don't, was not a part of, I don't know a lot about, but they're constantly in the field conducting um, surveys to add to their models. So constantly tracking from the summer through the fall on that side. You know, on our side, we're con we, have a, we have a public opinion director who was terrific, Julia Kennedy, who was organizing all of our activities. And essentially we're in a regular cadence with essentially, you know, the dozen plus or minus key states um, tracking and being in touch with them basically on a, on a regular basis from June through November, you know, ramping up as you get closer to November, you know, we would have uh, tier one states and tier two states, you know, um, those could 
you know, I think Georgia was probably not a tier one state when we started. Obviously, we know where that ended. Um, so there's a constant flow of information, A, from the analytics department, but also from kind of the team of poll pollsters, you know, every couple of weeks, maybe every month, based upon where the uh, split was. Um, for me, whenever I would do focus groups, just focus on young people, I would focus on those tier one or tier two states. You know, I do half dozen, eight, you know, 10 focus groups at a time, all virtual, you know, all virtual. So I could look at um, different groups, you know, older, you know, relatively speaking, you know, uh, suburban women in their 30s, right, was an important cohort, maybe in Western Pennsylvania, independent minded men, you know, in Central Florida, you know, college students, you know, first time voters, very progressive, you know, Sanders, Warren kinds of folks, you know, high school, Latino. So when you think about even within youth, the groups that we need to uh, connect with in order to inform our survey, you know, it adds up, it adds up pretty quickly. You know, thankfully, we have the resources to be able to, to achieve that and to be very flexible. Um, you know, we didn't know what the scope of our program was going to be when we began developing it months before the campaign actually, you know, months before the fall. So, you know, that's the flexibility that um, I think the campaign was able to develop both because of the success of fund fundraising, but also the multiple path strategy that was so criti critically important to our success. So interesting. Um, so interesting. Uh, so to wrap up, so now I, I guess to end this conversation, it's, it's all about where to next. And, you know, my, from, from looking from north of you here, it, it's, there's, there's no doubt that America is as divided as probably it's ever been. It remains that way. And, and the goal and the hopes, I think, of, of people is that that division might, might cease. Do you get a sense, though, that, and this is what drives my thinking on, on it, is we no longer even agree on the problems, right? It used to be, I think, even in the 60s and 70s, which were pretty tumultuous periods of American history, global history, most people still agreed what the problem was. We just debated how to solve it. But when I look at public opinion data and I look at what Democrats and Republicans say are the actual issues that we need to deal with, they're on completely different worlds, it feels like. Do you see that being able to change over time or is this just the normal? It's not new. It's the normal that a president um, and a political system has to just manage. It depends upon the definition of like what the timeline is, I think, you know, um, longer term, I'm very optimistic, um, you know, because of what I've, what we've talked about and because of the values of, 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 of younger Americans now def defined by people under the age roughly of 40, right? And whereas it's a divided nation, you know, for people under 40, it's more of a two-thirds, one-third, not 50-50, right? Mm -hmm. So there is some kind of collective interest, I think, in solving some of the, of the, of the challenges that we have. Shorter, you know, short-term uh, trajectory, I'm kind of less optimistic just because of this, like, in, in, incredible cultural divides, you know, um, and, and um, the feeling... Of, of helplessness, I think, in, in many places. And one of the more 
interesting, I think, statistics from the campaign was that, have you looked at the county data, the county level data? Um, Brookings um, uh, Institute released a report which said that uh, the Biden counties that he won, only uh, several hundred, okay, um, for maybe 400 and change. Whereas Trump won 2,500 counties, 2,400 counties. And of the small number of counties that Biden won, um, they represent 75% of our GDP or our economy. Um, and what that means is that the basically the influencers, the tastemakers, right, corporations are speaking to that part of America, to the blue America that supported Biden, and they're not speaking to the 2,000 plus counties that supported Trump, which I think is not going to be helpful, right? Um, it's going to further, I think, um, certainly not going to be helpful to bridging these divides. So short term, I think that's another kind of uh, cross pressure in terms of Hollywood, TV, corporations, marketing executives, et cetera, et cetera, and we're chasing the money in the blue, not the red counties. So um, that's going to be a challenge. And of course, that just kind of gets into what you mentioned is the lack of understanding of what our collective challenges are, which is around thought bubbles and Facebook and, and, and cable TV and Fox and, and other things. Longer term, I've got faith. Short term, it's going to be a very, very significant challenge. That's a really interesting perspective. I, I, you know, it's obvious, but we never think of it that not just our political elites that encourage kind of the tribalism in a way, but in fact, just commercial interests are driving Capitalism. people apart, right? Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, as much as Nike sees a path to growth and connection with its customers by putting a political flag down and saying, we stand for this, which half the country would say, I agree with, um, but 90% of its customers say, I love, it's, it's not speaking to the other half who say, well, what about me, right? It, it, it's a whole other conversation for another day. But the fact that, you know, in the United States, you have a fried chicken place that caters to Republicans and a fried chicken joint that caters to Democrats is a unique feature of our times and I think is, is something to think about. Well, John, hey, this was, uh, this was so much fun. And thanks for sharing and, and spending some time with us. Um, stay safe. And I, I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, likewise, this was something I've been looking forward to for a while. So thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. Take care. 